Welcome to Deep Dives, Egypt, episode number 11, The Great Exodus. So we covered a whole bunch in the last episode. We began in circa 1506 BC with the coronation of Thutmose I, who followed Amenhotep, which is also called Amenhotep I. Thutmose I inherited the expansionary tendencies of his grandfather, and he began his campaign of conquest with the all-out invasion of the Kingdom of Kush, followed by the complete destruction of the city of Kerma, which was then followed by his intense warfare in the Near East against the Syrian kings. And lastly, he would send a preemptive strike against the Kingdom of Mitanni, while Thutmose I only sat on the throne for 13 years, an even shorter reign marked the next ruler of the line, Thutmose II, who died early of sickness and then was succeeded by his child prince Thutmose III. We discussed how the Lady Pharaoh Hesheshput reigned as co-regent alongside Thutmose III and then assumed the role of Pharaoh herself. She beautified Egypt with a vast amount of building projects, and she sparked a cultural renaissance. Once Thutmose III came to age, and after he gained a significant knowledge in all subjects of kingly requirements, he assumed his role as pharaoh of the two lands. Ten weeks after his coronation, he set into work his plan to safeguard the empire that was created by his great-great-grandfather. A rising enemy coalesced in the Near East and fortified the city of Megiddo. Thutmose III was compelled to meet this enemy and restore Egyptian hegemony, and so he marched on Megiddo and took it. And then he marched even further into Syria to take key fortifications. Along with these, he converted several of the port cities of Phoenicia into supply centers for his eastern armies. Late in the reign of Thutmose III, the kingdom of Mitanni angered the pharaoh, and then pharaoh marched his armies to the Euphrates to face the dissenters and remind them of the Egyptian superiority. The Euphrates River naturally kept the two kingdoms separate, but even this massive obstacle could not stop the ambitious pharaoh from crossing it. And this is where we will pick up today. Unperturbed by the obstacles before him, Thutmose III ordered his armies to pack and transport the necessities for a final great assault on Mitanni. In order to accomplish this, the soldiers had to haul all of the heavy components of pontoons and rafts across the Syrian desert. Egypt was on the march for the Euphrates. The bellows of cattle and the whinnies of horses could be heard as the Egyptian war machine plowed through the Syrian desert. The whistling of the hot winds emanated throughout the landscape. A powerful breeze sent up particles of sand into the air around the army. The soldiers pulled their cloth coverings over their face to block out the sand. Janeni, the scribe of the pharaoh Thutmose III, sat inside a covered caravan. 
and the wheels of the wooden cart creaked as it went along. Chaneni rocked back and forth with the caravan as it traversed over the landscape. With a steady hand, Chaneni recorded the journey at his master's request. This is a fictional account, by the way, not real. It also has some terrible accents. Brace yourself. Our great leader builds ships of cedar in the lands of the gods, in the presence of the mistress in Byblos. When his eminence was satisfied with the ships of oak, he set off against his foes who lied northward. Our great master, the son of Amun-Ra, Thutmos, made his will known when he grabbed his weapon and spoke these words. Amun has chosen thee. Thy fate lies northward. We fly to the great river. Be steadfast. Be vigilant. His majesty will cross that river and attack that vile enemy in the lands of Metchen. Johnny rolled up his papyrus scroll and tossed his writing utensils in a small pouch next to him. He neatly placed the rolled up scroll inside of his carry bag alongside the dozens of other scrolls placed there with it. Johnny pulled at the cloth covering that was around his neck and pulled it over his nose and mouth. He reached for the leather straps that bound the cloth door together and untied them. His eyes peeked throughout the opening. He gazed at the reddish rock hills of the Syrian landscape that jut up like islands in a desert sea. The army set up plumes of smoke as the thousands upon thousands of men marched through the desert. Ra sent his rays over Janeni's face. After several days, the great Euphrates River finally revealed itself and the pharaoh ordered his soldiers to set to work in reconstructing the pontoons with haste. For hours they toiled, but eventually the ships were remade and were then placed into the water. With all the boats now in the river, the army entered them and set off. The military men rowed as they followed the much larger gilded pontoon of the pharaoh Thutmose III. The bows of the Egyptian vessels crashed across the water as they crossed. Pharaoh Thutmose stood at the prow of his pontoon, his white horses and gilded chariot being held onto tightly by his servants while the ship rocked back and forth with the current. Once Thutmose III and his armies banked upon the western side of the river, they disembarked and tied up their vessels. Egypt was now in Mitanni. Unlike the Battle of Megiddo, which was very well recorded, the battle that took place against the Mitanni is still shrouded in mystery. There is debate on to where the pharaoh actually crossed during his 33rd regnal year. Some believe that it was the Euphrates, others say it was the Orontes. Because I do not have the interpretation skills to come to my own conclusion, on the real meaning of the sparse one or two hieroglyphic inscriptions left behind for this event, I'll just stay neutral. Whatever the case may be, though, we can assume from what we have that Egypt brought Mitanni to heel once more and prevailed in their northern endeavors. With this final great victory, Thutmose III 
and in my opinion, Thutmose the Great led his exhausted armies back to the homeland, where he spent the last 12 years of his reign enjoying the fruits of his labor. Life couldn't have gotten better for an Egyptian monarch during this time. Gifts and tribute came into Egypt from all corners of the known world. Out of all of these great achievements, the one stark occurrence that took place during his reign that has caused historians many headaches and long debates is the so-called Thutmoside succession. All across the two lands, demolition crews defaced the statues of Hatshepsut and dedicated them to previous pharaohs, like Thutmose I and II, as well as himself, Thutmose III. It was a censorship campaign unlike no other, and it took place during his 42nd or 43rd regnal year. There are historians who claim that it was not Thutmose III, but rather some other monarch who did this. The debate is still ongoing on the issue, so I'll digress. It wouldn't be until much later, until the late 1800s, that the memory of Hatshepsut was revitalized. There's also another interesting period piece occurring during this time. Before I continue though, I want to disclose that the following narrative is not couched in proven fact. The occurrences that follow may have actually taken place before or after this point. The year is 1450 BC. Egypt has been thrust into a state of mourning after the passing of their esteemed and magnanimous pharaoh, Thutmose III. The streets of Thebes line with thousands of onlookers as the funerary procession passes through the streets. Egyptian honor guards stood in tight formation around the procession with their sharp spears and square shields keeping the crowds at bay. The civilians reached their arms through and attempted to touch the passing entourage, but the soldiers beat them back. Towards the front of the procession, a crowd of 20 women, all dressed in fine clothing and exquisite jewelry, follow directly behind the royal sarcophagus that is hoisted upon the backs of servants. They weep and mourn loudly as their hands fly up into the air while they cry. Behind them, the High Queen stands there, silently shedding tears. The Queen places her hand on the red sarcophagus, and she runs her fingers across the indentations of the many inlaid hieroglyphs that cover the entire coffin. Behind the Queen, many young children are following, the youngest of which look around in confusion as servants lead them by the hand. At the very front, standing beside his mother, is the 18-year-old Amenhotep II. His body is adorned with fine jewelry, and he is wearing multicolored clothing. A golden sash drapes over his back, and the red and white crown sits atop his head. His chin is held high, and he does not mourn. The new pharaoh of Egypt cannot look weak in front of his subjects. Deep in the crowd of civilians, a hooded figure watches as the procession passes by. His name will ring within the ears of millions of people for years to come. His name is Moses.
there is debate on to when exactly the Exodus took place. The Bible dates it to 1446 BC. And this brings up the question then, who was the Pharaoh who chased after Moses and the Israelites? My opinion is that it was Amenhotep II-A and not Amenhotep II-B, and I'll explain this A and B thing later. It's probably a little confusing. A quote from aboutmoses.com represents one opinion, but before I get on with that quote, I also want to remark on the fact that the author claims that Thutmose I is the one who initiated the enslavement of the Hebrews that is referenced in the Bible. Now here's the quote. Open quote. Moses was saved by a miracle and was the adopted son of the daughter of the pharaoh Hashtesput. She married her half-brother, Thutmose II, who ruled Egypt for about ten years and died without a successor. Upon his death, she began acting as regent for her stepson, the infant Thutmose III, but later took on the full powers of Pharaoh, becoming co-ruler of Egypt. Afterwards, Moses, raised by Hashtesput, and Thutmose III were the two rivals to become the king. However, when Moses was 40 years old, he killed an Egyptian who was beating up an Israelite. He had to flee to Midian, where he lived for 40 years. When he became 80 years old, he met God. End quote. Hundreds of years before the Hebrews were enslaved, the sons of Israel, or Jacob, migrated into Egypt. Many generations passed from Jacob to Moses, and in between these two times, the amount of Hebrew peoples that lived in Egypt had grown exponentially in number. Exodus 1 verse 6 says, open quote, In time, Joseph and all of his brothers dies, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land." End quote. This gathering of Semitic peoples alarmed the traditionally xenophobic Egyptian elite who considered this great gathering a threat to the hegemony of their two lands. So the Hebrews were enslaved by a pharaoh sometime during history. Some people acclaim that it must have been Thutmose I who did this, but it is still unknown. In Exodus 2 verses 2 through 3, it says, open quote, About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River." End quote. It then goes on to say in Exodus 2 verse 5 that, quote, Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to go get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby." End quote. 
It then goes on to describe how this Pharaoh's daughter brought Moses in and raised him under her royal roof. This Pharaoh's daughter is commonly believed to be Hashcheshbet. It also says in Exodus 2 verse 11 that, quote, Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating on one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand." End quote. I and many other people believe that the Egyptian that Moses killed before he fled to Midian could possibly have been Senemut, the tutor for Hashcheshbet's daughter and architect who, if you recall, suddenly disappeared. There is not much direct evidence for this assertion, but it's well to at least entertain it. If this Egyptian was truly Senemut, then Moses was right to have been afraid of the wrath of the mysterious Pharaoh. The Lady Pharaoh would have no doubt been infuriated after the death of her lover, Senemut. Anyways, I digress. Moses was 40 years old when he fled Egypt, and he stayed away for 40 more years until God called him back. Thutmose III, who, if you remember, followed Hashcheshbet, would have no doubt been influenced by his stepmother and co-regent on her wanting to kill Moses, and he would have probably killed Moses if he were given the chance as well. This is why in Exodus 5 verse 19, it says that, quote, before Moses left Midian, the Lord said to him, Return to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you have died. End quote. When Moses returned to Egypt, both Thutmose III and Hashcheshbet had both already died, so this fits well into the biblical chronology. Moses fits into the story again before the 1446 BC date of Exodus when he was called by God to Mount Sinai where he saw the burning bush. God ordered him to go in front of the Pharaoh and order the release of his peoples, the Hebrews, in order that they may come worship him at Mount Sinai. Moses returns to Egypt. An 80-year-old Moses with a worn red cape and a shaggy gray beard loads his travel gear onto his donkey. He tied up his shepherd's staff to the side of the animal. When Moses finished loading up his gear, he walked over to his father-in-law, Jethro, who was standing in the doorway to his house. And Moses said, Please, Jethro, let me return to my relatives in Egypt. I don't even know if they are alive. Jethro looked down at Moses with his hands placed on his hips. After a few seconds, Jethro responded, Go in peace, Moses. So Moses set off with his family into the wilderness where he met with Aaron. When they arrived to Egypt, they convinced the elders of Israel to heed the will of God. And soon after, they gained an audience with the king himself. Moses and Aaron approached the royal palace. The two front doors 
that are made of cedar and inlaid with gold lumber open as Moses and Aaron enter into the Pharaoh's house. Servants can be seen dashing back and forth, carrying around plates of food and crates of supplies. Beams of golden light shine throughout the glassless windows and reflect off the smooth floors. The Pharaoh, Amenhotep II, sat in his throne of solid gold and gazed down at the two men approaching him. The older man, with a gray beard and a red cape, walked up and pronounced this to the Pharaoh. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. End quote. Exodus 5 verse 1. Amenhotep felt a geyser of anger built up within him at this moment. How dare this lowly man make demands of the great ruler of the two lands? The pharaoh responded quick and decisively. Is that so? And who is this lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the lord and I will not let Israel go. Exodus 5 verse 2. This pharaoh, who I believe to be Amenhotep II, restricted the Hebrews from leaving, and then he made their enslavement even more harsh. It is said in the Bible that some 600,000 Hebrew slaves were under the control of the Pharaoh. If you're not familiar with the story of Moses, then it's important for the listener to note that the Pharaoh before this time ordered for the cruel execution of all newborn Hebrew boys at the same time that Moses was born. Ever since their initial migration into Egypt, it can be inferred that they were a persecuted people. What follows the pharaoh's disapproval are the ten plagues inflicted upon Egypt by God. Amenhotep would not release the Hebrews for Passover, even after his water turned to blood and locusts swarmed his lands. Only the tenth plague was harsh enough for him to beg for mercy. In Exodus 12, verse 31, the Pharaoh says, Get out, leave my people, and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you said, and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. End quote. The great Exodus must have been an amazing sight. Like a massive army, the 600,000 Israelites marched out of Egypt following Moses, who had a shepherd's staff firmly in his hand. Millions of herd animals also followed the people as they went. And this all sent plumes of desert smoke high into the air as they left their persecution. Several years earlier, a 16-year-old Amenhotep II walked down the pillared halls of the temple of Amun-Ra at Ipadshet with his three companions next to him. All three of Amenhotep's companions were childhood friends. They grew up together in the nursery and became very close. The oldest of them, Menhap Parasenep, walked with regality alongside his future king. 
He admired the elegant statuary around him and pondered about wealth and glory. Menhap Parasineb looked over at Amenhotep II, who was both taller and broader in stature, and he asked, When you become the pharaoh, I would like to serve you as high priest of Amun. That is my wish. And then the young Amenhotep II responded, When I am pharaoh, I will grant all of your wishes, my friend. Great wealth and glory awaits us. He smiled at his three friends, Menhap Parasineb, Ken Amun, and Rek Mira. The soiree traipsed into the common chamber of the temple, and a group of foreigners the same age as them huddled around their Egyptian teacher, who was the high priest of the temple of Amun-Ra. Must be the foreign princess, Ken Amun remarked. Damned Asiatics, he said contemptuously. First they overrun our lands, and now they learn our culture and train to fill our courts. You're looking at it wrong, Kenamun. Incorporating them will prevent them from revolting in the future. It's a proactive policy, said Rekmira as he voiced his opinion. Amenhotep and Menhep Parasineb looked at each other before they gazed back at their friends. I agree, Kenamun. They flood our lands and receive special treatment after they rise against us. Under my reign, this will not happen, the future pharaoh remarked. Amenhotep II was not a particularly friendly and benevolent pharaoh. He was actually pretty cruel. Once Amenhotep reached kingship, he would set off against a revolt that had risen in Kadesh, where it is said that he slayed seven princes and hoisted them upside down from the bow of his ship on his journey home. He would hang six of them throughout Thebes as to deter any would-be dissenters from making their moves, and he brought the seventh body down to Nubia for a similar show of sovereign power and the mortal consequences of opposing it. As I read in between the lines of Amenhotep II's gross exaggerations, one thing in particular jumps out as a real accomplishment. Once Amenhotep II took the throne, he would set out to emulate the doings of his father. Over the course of his multiple campaigns, he consolidated his territories and took tribute from the surrounding lands, but the extent of it would not meet that of his predecessors. Nonetheless, a vast amount of gold and other material wealth poured into Egypt, making him one of the richest pharaohs. If you put a large portion of the known world's wealth, a powerful army, and a sprawling nation under the control of an 18-year-old, interesting things are bound to happen. Amenhotep and the council of high officials that were constantly around him would travel and compete in all sorts of tournaments and shows of strength and stamina. He is known as a particularly boastful king, saying that he could shoot four arrows at a time and meet his targets, that he could shoot an arrow through a plate of copper the thickness of a fist. There is no doubt that Amenhotep II was under pressure by the plethoras of accomplishments and achievements of his father, not to mention that he would have to gaze upon the daily reminders of his father's exploits 
that covered the entirety of Egypt in the forms of monuments and temples. Because of this, Amenhotep would have touted his abilities and talents to a great avail as to enlarge his ego. He is recorded leaving behind records of his physical stamina and strength, saying that he could row a ship faster and farther than 200 of his navy men could roll theirs, and that he killed seven princes of Kadesh with his own hands. He is also remarked as grossly over-exaggerating a few more of his accomplishments, saying that in one foray against the Mitanni, he captured more than 80,000 slaves. But as I dive into this research, this number may prove not to be too far exaggerated after all. What is interesting, though, is that the pharaoh mentioned in Exodus is supposedly an arrogant and boastful one, which sounds characteristic of Amenhotep II, who rose to the throne at 18 years of age. Although Amenhotep II, and if you're noticing, I'm going back and forth sometimes between Amenhotep and Amenhotep. It's the same person, I just sometimes say it differently. Although Amenhotep II is not regarded as the most inclusive type of pharaoh, it appears that he at least formed an informal peace between the two kingdoms of Mitanni and Egypt during his time, which revitalized the trade interactions and allowed open borders between the two kingdoms. Indeed, the Hittites were rising in power in Anatolia, and this added great pressure onto the borders of Mitanni during this time. So this would have doubtlessly caused the political relations between Mitanni and Egypt to shift in pitch towards a more harmonious tone. The two would not partake in conflict again after this point, and Mitanni and Egypt would eventually form a full alliance under Amenhotep II's successor, Thutmose IV. This informal alliance brought about during Amenhotep II's reign was probably not a beneficent move, but a political one. His contemptuousness towards non-Egyptians retained its uh, former glory. This contemptuousness can be illuminated with the following passage from militaryhistory.fandom.com. Now, these people from Tekshi, Syria, are worthless. What are they good for? Do not trust a Nubian, but beware of their people and their witchcraft. Take this servant of a commoner, for example, whom you made an official, although he is not an official whom you should have suggested to his majesty. Or did you want to allude to the proverb, if you lack a gold battle axe inlaid with bronze, a heavy club of Acadia wood will do? So do not listen to their words, and do not heed their messages. End quote. Amenhotep II would carry on with the same attitude throughout the rest of his reign, which was shorter than his father's, and may have been cut shorter than the range we typically attribute to him. Was his reign cut shorter by more mysterious matters? Perhaps matters of biblical proportions? Interestingly, Amenhotep II was interred differently, and that means just mummified pretty much. He was interred differently than his predecessors. This can be expounded upon from the study quoted from BibleArchaeology.com. And this discusses the potentiality of Amenhotep II being the pharaoh mentioned in Exodus. Open quote. There are some interesting features to this mummy, 
First, it is not desiccated like the normal mummies. That's why either soaked in a solution of natron, a sodium salt, or packed in dry natron. This applies for a rapid burial of the body. Second, there was no resinous coating applied to this mummy. This commonly was done, which provides a second argument for a rapid burial. As a result, this has been called one of the best preserved of all royal mummies. Harrison Weeks, 1973. The irony of this may be that it is the best preserved because it was not preserved in the normal way. His head was shaved and there are abrasions on the tip of the nose and on his right cheek that look as if they may be antemortem or intramortem injuries, not postmortem changes. End quote. Alright guys, in all seriousness, was this the pharaoh that died in the floods of the Red Sea after his chase of Moses? If so, maybe that would help us explain the strange way that he was embalmed. Perhaps they were dealing with a body that had been ravaged by the crashing sea and then washed up on the shore with his army afterwards to be collected by these search parties. This might point towards the abrasions, at least, on the tip of his nose and cheek. Perhaps those injuries were caused by the intense and turbulent dragging across the sea floor. Most of the rest of his body would have been armored and less susceptible to injuries of that kind. What's also interesting is that a strange gap in the chronology and a blip in the inscriptions that are left behind takes place between his fourth and seventh regnal years. This would chronologically provide the amount of time necessary for the exodus to play out. It has also been postulated that Amenhotep II had a son, also called Amenhotep, who continued to reign for him and over time they would be conceived as a single ruler, which would account for the longer estimations of historians on the length of his reign. This argument was pronounced by uh, Siegfried Horn in the dictionary article in 1979 that he wrote. And if you do remember, at the very beginning of the episode, I used Amenhotep II-A and Amenhotep II-B and said I will come back to it later. So this is kind of where we're at right now. Caprice. To be more concise, we need to take a look at how these historians came to their conclusions. First, there's the matter of dating. When calculating the specific dates of ancient Egyptian events, such as ascensions to the throne, you can not only use one but three different time calculations. These are referred to as high, middle, and low chronologies. We can derive dates from several sources left to us by the ancients as well. First, the Turin Kings list, if you remember we talked about that way back. Second, from the historian Manetho, who we will talk about. And third, from astronomical observations that use the heliacal rise of the star Sothis. Because much of the data left behind is dated upon the heliacal rise of the star Sothis, it is subject to discrepancy depending on where the event was recorded within Egypt. A star reading taken on one day in Thebes would be different than another star reading taken on the same day in Memphis. This discrepancy could grow to be more than 10 years difference over time, making precise dating very difficult. 
This is why Exodus is still causing debate within the historical community on who the Pharaoh from Exodus was. Most of the debate centers around it either being Thutmose III or his son Amenhotep II. It is famously thought that Ramses was the famous king of uh, the Bible uh, from the film in 1956, The Ten Commandments, but I think that's been discredited today. Um, nevertheless, a few strange things occurred during Amenhotep II's reign that pull our attention closer to this mystery. On several stela, or those little monuments with inscriptions on them, left behind in the Karnak Temple, we can still read the inscriptions that Amenhotep II commissioned. On one stela, during his third regnal year, hieroglyphs describe his first campaign of victory over an enemy. Then one finds another stela, commissioned during his seventh regnal year, describing another first campaign of victory. So which one was the first? Shouldn't the stela from the seventh regnal year describe a second victory? There is argument against this point of view in that it speculates that Amenhotep actually served as a co-regent under Thutmose the, the third, sorry, before he became sole ruler. And so while Amenhotep was co-regent to his father, he had his first campaign of victory, but it was under his father and not by himself. The counter-argument continues by saying that the inscription of his first campaign of victory during his seventh regnal year was by his hand alone, and that he wished to make it the one that was chronologically first. But if he really, really wanted to make it chronologically first and set in stone, no pun intended, he would have to demolish the other statue to pretty much make that come to fruition. But he didn't do it. He left it. Um, so the counter is really good at its face, but I also uh, read something that uh, co-regents began their regnal year count, right? The the years of their reign would, would start counting once they became co-regents. Uh, and then the time by which they became the sole ruler, that count wouldn't start over again. It would just keep going. So there would be no reason for a co-regent turned pharaoh to reset the order of his military campaigns as well. Also, the stela from his ninth regnal year describes a second campaign of victory, which follows this mode of logic because his real first campaign of victory or whatever, the one that he wanted to recognize, he would follow that up with the second campaign of victory. Um, but there was no reason not to suggest that the first, first campaign of victory in the third regnal year shouldn't be followed up by a second uh, campaign of victory, which would be the second stone. But that didn't happen. So it's kind of confusing. Uh, what's even stronger evidence that there were two Amenhoteps uh, instead of one comes from another set of stela that describe two completely different ascension dates. One date takes place directly after the death of his father Thutmose III, and there is strangely another one later in his reign. So he was coronated twice. Why? Very strange indeed. Was this a cover-up? Did something happen during this time in history that the authorities in Egypt wanted to quickly erase from memory? After all, just before the Exodus mystery begins to unfold, a campaign of state-sanctioned censorship occurred with the defacement of the old statues of Hatshepsut. 
in order to erase a monarch or event from memory, uh, the leaders would do this. They would deface the statues. So going back, if we use the high chronology for this analysis, and potentially if we use the middle chronology, but more likely just the high, uh, we land exactly at the time frame of Amenhotep II's reign as being the time which the exodus occurred, and thus making Amenhotep II, or Amenhotep II, the pharaoh from Exodus. Voila. The Bible only hints one time at a date for Exodus in Kings 6 verse 1, and it says, quote, It was in mid-spring, in the month of Ziv, during the fourth year of Solomon's reign, that he began to construct the temple of the Lord. This was 480 years after the people of Israel were rescued from their slavery in the land of Egypt. End quote. According to the chronology of Edwin R. Thiel, Solomon ruled for 40 years and died in 931 BC. So let's add 40 years to 931 BC. We'll get 971 BC. And so if it took four years to make the Temple of Solomon, then we now be at 967 BC. Now if we add 480 years to 967 BC, we arrive at 1447 BC. But we have to account for one more thing. And there's a discrepancy between the Tishri calendar, ooh, used during Solomon's time, and the ascension year system of dating used during Rehoboam's kingship, which followed Solomon. This basically means that year one would start on the day of ascension, and it would not start at the year zero and count up to one. With this taken into place, we have to subtract one year from 1447 BC to finally arrive at 1446 BC as being the exact date of Exodus. Another voila. So let's wrap this one up real quick. Disclosure. This is using high chronology, and I'm probably going to go a little fast. Amenhotep II ascended to the throne on the year 1450 BC. A very strange gap occurs in his records between the 3rd and 7th regnal years, during the exact same time that the Bible dates Exodus to be. By the Julian calendar, and using high chronology, Amenhotep II assumed the throne in 1450 BC. His first victorious campaign took place in 1447 BC. Then a gap appears in the chronology between then and 1446 BC. Then in 1445 BC, his first victorious campaign appears again, but in another place with another description. Then in 1442, his second campaign appears. Strange, huh? This discrepancy in records along with the double coronation makes you think a very in intriguing mystery is involved. Because I like this idea and also because it makes the journey a little bit more interesting, we will assume that it's true for the rest of the episode. We're also going to assume that there's two Amenhoteps, and so we're going to call the first one A Menhotep and then the second one B Menhotep. Not nah, just kidding. We're going to use the proper terminology today. Amenhotep the second A and Amenhotep the second B. We can imagine that Amenhotep II-B was a younger brother, or perhaps a twin, maybe a son. As of yet, there's no direct evidence for any of these claims, so I'm merely speculating. 
but this idea of a twin brother may lend credence to how well the Egyptians were able to cover up the death of the monarch after Exodus and mesh the two together into one monarch. If this proves to be true, and there are actually two Amenhotep IIs, then perhaps it would add some insight into Amenhotep II-B's antipathy towards the Nubians, and uh, the Hebrews also with their magic and witchcraft. Did the biblical parting of the Red Sea have something to do with this disposition? The Mystery Unfolds Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. Camp there along the shore, across from Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think. The Israelites are confused. They are trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. End quote. Exodus 14, 1 through 4. From the shore of Baal Zephon, Moses stood facing the sea before him, listening to the soft crash of the waves and talking to his Lord. Why do you send us into the wilderness? What is our purpose here, Lord? Moses decried, but with no answer. The moon rose over the sea and painted white golden rays of light onto the water. There he sat throughout the night. From the terraces of his royal palace in Gaza, Amenhotep II laid on a plush set of cushions while his semi-dressed servants fanned him off and sang him melodies. There he waited for the spoils of his recent hunting victory to be brought back to him. Along with his entire household guard and a portion of his army, the young monarch set off on a boar hunt of godly proportions, bringing back several dozen wild boars after only one day's sport. The pharaoh thought it was a good idea to bring his spoils to Gaza, the place where he learned to use a bow and hunt like a king. From his terraced patio, he gazed at the vast monuments of stone built by his forefathers, bending his neck as he looked up at the peak of the Great Pyramid of Cheops, Khufu. He felt a strange thrill run down his spine as he gazed at the monuments. A stroke of egotism sent a cunning grin over his face as his imagination shifted towards his future conquests and the great spoils of war. He saw the whole world bending their knees to him and bringing him gifts. He saw millions of people worshipping him as their divine king and god. Suddenly, three armored men approached the young pharaoh. The leader of these three military men glaringly looked at the servant girls as they approached and they dispelled and left the pharaoh to his own. Amenhotep looked confused, and he sat up to confront this annoyance. What is it? Why have you disturbed me? This must be important. 
Amenhotep II questioned, anger filling his tone. The commander walked up, took his helmet off, and placed it at his side. He looked down at the pharaoh's feet before he began to speak. The Hebrew slaves, they've escaped. They've left Egypt and are trapped in the wilderness. Amenhotep II stood up really furiously and began to speak. Ready my army, now. I am the son of Amun and the king of kings. I will not be slighted like this. And so the armies of Amenhotep set off in pursuit of the Israelites. And so Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best war chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in the Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers, and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore of Pi-Hahiroth, across from Baal-Zephon. End quote. Exodus 14, verses 6-9 through nine. On the shores of Pi-Hahiroth the next morning, Moses stood there, gazing out at the water again. His people were starting to get anxious. They were questioning his reason for bringing them here. He stood there and contemplated, attempting to receive answers from God. Look, we are doomed. The Egyptians have come. Moses heard a voice emanate from the massive camp below him. Far off in the distance, Moses saw plumes of smoke rising high above the flat desert floor. Tiny black figures could be made out, and as they got closer, It's the Pharaoh himself. He rides in his chariot. Someone yelled from the distance. The crowd began to become frantic. Wails and screams started to emit from the crowd as they began to push against the banks of the sea near Moses. Why did you bring us here? One called it to Moses. I'd rather be an Egyptian slave than a dead man, another called. Suddenly, as the frantic calls of the people began to turn into panic, he heard a voice in his head, and it said to him, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through the Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots, and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14 verses 15 through 18 And then an angel came down to Moses and put a pillar of cloud between the two forces, separating the Israelites from the Egyptians. All of the Israelites now looked at Moses, all 600,000 of them. And then Moses did as God commanded and lifted his shepherd's staff high into the air above him. And then he put his other hand over the sea and closed his eyes. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea. The Lord opened up a path through the water, 
with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of the Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and clouds, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from the Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. When all of the Israelites had reached to the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again. Then the water will rush back and cover the Egyptians in the chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all of the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of the Pharaoh. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. End quote. Exodus 15, verses 21 through 29. So what do you think? Was it Amenhotep II who chased the Israelites? Were there two of him instead of one? When did Exodus really happen? Was it 1446 BC or some other date? There's so many questions to be answered here, and that makes the journey all the more interesting. Uh, so this will conclude episode number 11, The Great Exodus. Make sure to tune in next time as we pick up with Pharaoh Thutmose IV and the mystery of the Sphinx. So as always, thank you and stay intrigued. See you next time.